Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we're joined by Michael Helms. Michael is co-CEO of Ionoptics, a company known for their solutions in high-speed quantitative fluorescence, muscle mechanics, and tissue engineering. He is here to discuss a novel technique for measuring work output and replicating the four phases of the cardiac cycle at the single cell level. Let's jump in. The compliance results in the end systolic force length relation, you mentioned that they're shallow. Ultimately, why is this? And then also, is this somewhat limiting uh, for the researcher? Can I take this question? Uh, yes. What happens, we use a lot of my attacks. So when you do a micro stretch, especially <coughs> at your longer lengths and high forces, more than 50% gets taken up by the myotech, and the rest is used for stretching the cell. You're underestimating how much the cell is actually being stretched. Um, it's not a showstopper. I mean, it's unfortunate, and that's why we try to work on it. But if you glue your cells consistently, the same thing will happen every time. So it's a systematic error. You can get around it, and you can still find differences doing so. If you actually look at the sarcoma length at diastole and systole, you see actually there is a proper relation with a very high ratio between the systolic sarcoma length and the diastolic force and diastolic for sarcoma length relation. Uh, but there are some issues with end systolic sarcoma lengths that I won't get into here, but that's why I haven't been showing these graphs, because it would be a bit misleading, maybe, uh, although it would have looked good. Uh, next question, please. Uh, sure. Okay, so how about during force development? The measurements are supposed to be isometric, but it looks like the cell sarcoma length is shortening. Why is that? It's for the same reason, because you have a compliant connection, so you get internal shortening. This is nothing new. People with trabeculae have had trouble with that for years and tried also for years to fix that. Uh, funny enough, I don't think it matters. Um, when you look at end-systolic sarcoma length correlates very poorly with the developed force we have found out. In red myocytes at 37 degrees, the curve seems to be entirely dominated by the, the length-dependent activation seems to be entirely dominated by the end-diastolic sarcoma length and not end-systolic sarcoma length. Uh, so although, yeah, it is an issue to be aware of, it doesn't prevent you from doing very useful experiments. Uh, okay. Just to reiterate that, Michael, you mentioned how as long as you're consistent in applying the myotech, then it essentially yeah, becomes a constant. I think that's, uh, that's an important point to make. So you can still compare animal models if that's what, what, what you're trying to get at here, uh, Okay. So, and yeah, and kind of on the note, Joe, that you bring up about attachment points, we've had uh, some questions come in about that. Carrie actually asks about the use of myotac. So just, are there any best practices for myotac that we can rehash? I know you covered this in your first webinar, so perhaps maybe that's the first resource. If for anyone who's more interested, check that out. And the papers by Prosser, but what can you share with us now online about best practices with using myotac coding and getting a secure attachment? Coating is all important. There is no golden rule. The, what, what happens is you have to do a decent pre-coat, so you have a rough surface on your cell, and then you have to get a decent amount of myotech that you don't let cure too long, not too short. But there is no perfect answer because the climate in every laboratory is different. In Arizona, I did it in Hank's lab, you have tens of seconds before your myotech is almost evaporated and it gels. When it's cold and you have a high humidity, it can take five minutes. There hardly is a best practice. Now, you'll find your best practice for the experiment you want to do. If I want to minimize, if I want to minimize the compliance, I use very little myotech. But the result is I lose a fair number of cells. If I want to do a really long experiment where I want to use the cells for an hour or more, I use a lot of myotech so the cell is practically swimming in it, and it makes it very happy. 
unless you do very crazy things with it, it'll stay healthy and beating pretty much at the same force for hour and a half, if you will, because uh, it's in it's in the environment that it wants to be in an extracellular matrix. Um, okay. So there's no best practice. You have to feel your way through it, and you if you do a lot of experiments, you find what suits your experiments. Now, what is important is that the MyTech is still of good quality. Uh, and again, how often you thaw and refreeze your MyTech, I can get away with it a lot. It's very humid in the Netherlands, and it never gets very hot, so it doesn't degrade very quickly. Um, we have people in China that complain that, uh, that they can, after, after, after freezing and it two or three times, uh, it's not sticky anymore. And the same thing if they store it in, uh, in the laboratory. Uh, clearly, having a lab at 30 Celsius uh, with almost 100% humidity uh, is not very good for keeping the quality of your MyAttack. Uh, so you have to, when you get fresh MyAttack, uh, you have to kind of get a sense for how well it sticks then. Okay. You have to have a sense how and when it degrades and adjust your practice to it. Uh, it's the reason why we deliver many small files uh, so you don't have to waste everything in one shot. Uh, and you can open a new file every week without it uh, crippling you financially. Right. So it's definitely a discovery process depending on the research objectives, but also, as you say, the environment. Well, then I guess on the same topic of attachment, you know, you've introduced the cell attachment holders that Ben Prosser's been working with extensively. I know this is a new thing, or you've mentioned this, but again, you know, can you share any other details again about how that brings us up to another level of maybe consistency and accuracy on cell attachment? And Well, in the end, the amount of force you can apply to, uh, to my side depends on how good the connection is. Mm-hmm. And if you quadruple the attachment area, the area between the, the bonding area between the myotech and the cell itself, you will also quadruple the amount of force it can hold. Uh, and similarly, you'll get less slippage because you have a much bigger band holding it in place. It will still be elastic, but if it's very hard to stretch, you won't notice it anymore. Huh? Okay. It's important to note as well, with the uh, cell holders, you run the risk of actually uh, filling the, the cavity with pre-coat. So there are some differences between using the, the straight rods and the cell holders. We're still sort of working through all that. What would be really nice and what Ben actually asked us for is if we could uh, coarsen the the surface so that the pre-coat wasn't even necessary. And that's something we considered, but we don't actually make the cell holders. We design them and send them out to be laser etched. So there's limitations to how much we can actually do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but yeah, this is an ongoing innovation and so you go, obviously we'll be keeping uh, your researchers and your users up to speed on those changes. So very good. Hopefully that addresses some of your questions, Carrie. Thank you for sending those in. Let's change gears a bit. How about, um, uh, you know, Michael, you talk about setting preload and afterload as it relates to you know, generating work, work loops. And, you know, you touched on this just briefly in the middle of your presentation, but you know, specifically, how would a researcher determine, or again, is there a best practice or a rationale to which preloads and afterloads they should use for a particular experiment? It's hard to give absolute numbers because that, of course, totally depends on uh, how much force you generate. And when you start doing work loops, the first rule of thumb is your signal to noise should be good enough so you can actually do force clamping. And once you have that, you look at the, the amplitude of your force signal and you base your pre and afterload on that. I mean, my standard numbers are that once I start, I, I add. So I take the, the amplitude of my force transient, I add 10% of that to the baseline for my starting preload. So it will stretch it a little bit. So I know that I have a good contraction and maybe 45, 45% of the, the amplitude of my contraction for the afterload. So it does a decent amount of clamping. If I really want to start close to isotonic, I make the afterload and preload equal. If not, then I put them a little bit further apart. It, it just depends what you, what you want to get out of it. But you can do almost anything you want as long as you have a decent signal to noise. 
if you have a mouse mice side, you should use a slightly more sensitive uh, probe than if you use red mice sites because the force levels are just lower. If you use a disease model, you may again have to go to a, a more compliant probe so you get better signal to noise for the low forces you'll get and you'll still be able to do the clamping. Uh, okay. Joe, is there any, can you chime in on this as well? I know in previous discussion, you and I, we talked about pre and after loads and in a practical sense, how the user would kind of set these or... Yeah, so we've designed the software to make it as easy as possible. Uh, the software determines the min-max force, the diastolic, systolic forces for you. And so you're just entering values based on that in a relative sense. So what percentage, like Michael mentioned, he starts with a 10% preload. So you just throw those values right into the software and the software takes care of it for you. Okay, very good. I'm sure this is of interest to, to many online. How about combining different experimental techniques along with work loops simultaneously? I mean, we're on a microscope stage, so... I'm sure there are multiple techniques we could add simultaneously. Can can you guys touch on that for a moment? Yeah, uh, Michael mentioned in Ben's lab that they uh, they done confocal. Really, any microscope-based technique will work. You know, fluorescence, so like the confocal, any imaging, wide fields, any photometry techniques. It'll also work with patch clamp. You have to be conscious of the fact that you're actually changing the length you're driving, the length of the motor. So you want to put the, the patch needle where there's the cells most stationary. Mm-hmm. And also, of course, contrast-based techniques. One of the limitations of doing tissue is that it's hard to get a proper your shortening measurement, but in single cells, that's trivial. So contrast-based techniques like sarcomere shortening are also available. Perfect. What are you measuring for cell length? Are you measuring a distance between the rods or are we relating this back to sarcomere length? You know, so the graph of a work loop, what are we really looking yeah. at? So what you're measuring, you're measuring what's called the external work that the mice have is doing. I mean, there's work that's being done internally, the calcium turnover, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the work loops are about the external work that it is doing. So there's only two parameters relevant in this case. That is the force, and that is the length change that the motor makes. So whenever I show loops, it's the force and the length change the motor makes. Now, I'd like to know the sarcomere length, and that's whenever I put the sarcomere length in the graph, I kind of put it aside. Uh, okay. It would look kind of ugly if I would make uh, force sarcomere length graphs. Uh, yeah. It may look slightly less ugly if I use the cell holders, but, but really then it still would not be appropriate because the external work is the work between the force transducer and the motor. Perfect. And they're actually absolute values. It's nice. You don't have to argue whether a micron is a micron or whether a micronewton is a micronewton. It is what it is. So it's a nice absolute value that you can compare from cell to cell. Perfect. No, I think that's a great answer. Thank you. We've got a number of users of ion optic systems and, you know, other systems that have, you know, homegrown as I refer to them. But um, a number of questions kind of just really draw on the question of those that are doing your traditional calcium and contractility measurements. What equipment or what needs to be added to take a system of that nature to measuring work as, we, as we've discussed today? Starting with just a basic ion optics calcium contractility system, in terms of hardware, you need the ability to attach the myocyte, and that's what we call the myostretcher. Mm-hmm. Be able to, you need the ability to measure force, and that's the optic force transducer, and then make fast link changes, so the piezo motor as well. We'd also need to upgrade the hardware interface to accommodate the programmable FPGA chip, and then in software, you need to add a new acquisition module to your existing uh, core acquisition software. In terms of home-built systems, that's kind of a case-by-case situation. Obviously, you need those four components, but you might also need a couple other components to make the system go. So, okay. you know, Can I chime in on that? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there, there's one example where people were studying uh, tuberculosis muscle strips, uh, and they wanted to do work loops with it, and they had a they had an Aurora system, which is which has a force transducer that it has an analog output. It has a galvo motor that has an analog input. So all they did was connect those to our interface box that contains the FPGA, and they could run the work loops. Okay. So in that sense, you can combine it with, uh, with third-party components or with existing systems. Oh, that's great. So there is an opportunity to mate you know, the essential technologies yeah. you listed, Michael, earlier that really brought to you to the higher performance work stage we're at now. Yeah. Provided that your force measurements are good enough and mm-hmm. that you have a fast enough way to change length. Okay. Uh, yeah, and the, the third-party equipment has the appropriate outputs and inputs that you can drive. Sure. The, the, actually, when it comes to analog in and out, in an outputs, that's rarely a problem, but yes. Uh, Perfect. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.